And now, if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. For the first couple of months of this year, we've been working our way through the minor prophets, Hosea and then Joel. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to put that on hold, not because we're separating from what they say completely. After all, the minor prophets talk about restoration. They talk about repentance. They talk about the anticipation of someone who will come that the people's hearts will be drawn toward. You remember in Hosea how the people will return and they will follow after one prince, one Lord David, their king. We're talking about that king. We're talking about the coming of that anticipated Messiah. But for this week and next week, we'll focus on the ministry of Christ and exactly what was accomplished some 2,000 years ago. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we're talking about the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the King who came, but it is not proper to simply talk about Christ as someone who is a historical figure who's coming into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday was a good party, but nothing else. When we talk about the coming of Christ, we talk about the King who came, but we also have to talk about the King who is coming again. Anticipation is built into the life of the believer. And that's what we want to look at today. And that's what we want to rejoice in next week. If you're not there already, Luke chapter 19, the account that we know as the triumphal entry. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 36 is where I'll read. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. He was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us the opportunity to praise, to worship, to anticipate the coming of the King. We read these things and we see the truth of what happened. We see why it's important. We ask that through your spirit, you would open our eyes so we might behold wonderful things from your word so that we might see why it is you've left these things for us. But Lord, don't leave us simply knowing. Lord, help us to respond rightly. Help us to worship you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength with everything that we are. Make us a people whose lives are laid down as willing sacrifices for you. And God, give us an anticipation of the time when the King will come again. I praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We are a people that like to be prepared. A lot of uh, research goes into our retirement accounts and how we invest. A lot of research goes into our fantasy football teams and things that are significantly less long-lasting. We like to know and we like to anticipate what's coming. And when we come to Luke chapter 19, we have to understand some of the anticipation that these people were living in. This isn't just another day with another visitor coming into a crowded city. This wasn't just another teacher. This wasn't even just a significant prophet. This is a key moment in the life of a nation. To the gathered crowds, this is what they had longed for and hoped for as a people. The the problem is that the crowd on that day, on the plains outside of Jerusalem, was not as ready as they thought they were. They weren't as prepared as they would have thought as a people. They weren't anticipating exactly what they should have been anticipating. And we're going to see that they missed it, and we're going to be encouraged not to miss the same things. And so as we come to this uh, chapter in Luke chapter 19, 
we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see the king in his humility. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, who laid that glory aside and who came in humility. And then we're going to close by looking at the king in his glory. The king who came in humility but is coming again in glory. And this is a familiar story. Uh, We know the path. We know the visuals. We've seen it on the flannel graphs and the whiteboards and the veggie tails. But this is a remarkable scene. It is a remarkable scene with a depth of meaning and theological import and truth that really ought to change our lives. And so when we come to Luke chapter 19, we see the king in his humility. And the first thing that we really have to wrestle with is the idea that this is a lowly king. Because when we talk about a king, humility is not the first thing that comes to our minds. Kings are not by nature displayed in humility. Kings are surrounded by wealth and power. Kings are surrounded by symbols of that wealth and power. Everything from the way they dress to uh, the transportation that they use to the people that they surround themselves with. Uh, Kings are marked by their power and all the trappings that go along with that. And when it comes to this point in Luke's gospel, humility is almost difficult to get a hold of simply because we know what Christ has done. We spent a long time in Matthew, and so the narratives line up really closely, but by the time we get here, by the time we are at the gates of Jerusalem on that triumphal entry morning, we know that Jesus Christ has been able to heal with a word. We know that this is the same Jesus Christ who taught with an authority that the people had never encountered before. We know that this is the same Jesus Christ who was able to calm the storms by speaking to them. This is the same Jesus who raised the dead and brought Lazarus back to life. And someone with that kind of power, that kind of authority, power that the world had never seen before, to even imagine him in humility is kind of a stretch. But now Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and he's coming to these two little villages of Bethphage and Bethany uh, between Jericho and Jerusalem. He's about two miles from the entrance to the city. And as he comes, he gives a very specific command to his men. Luke, 18, or Luke 19, verse 30. And he says, go into the village in front of you. And on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it familiar story about Jesus who gives his men a very, very particular instruction. And even that should have been a reminder that this isn't just another king. This is a king who knows exactly what will happen. And he sends his men in to get not the biggest, not the best that he could find, but to get a colt, a young colt. Matthew's gospel tells us still tied to its mother. See, when great kings come into cities, they don't ride on donkeys. They ride on war horses. They ride in on chariots. They ride in in a procession that shows their glory and their power, their authority, their strength. The bigger, the better. But not this king. They go in and exactly what he says what happens, happens. And verse 35, they bring it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. The king comes in seated on a donkey, not a mighty horse. The king comes in riding over cloaks and palm branches and not on a nicely paved road. The king comes in surrounded by fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people. 
not his top generals, not the educated, not the wealthy, and not the elite. He's surrounded by crowds of just people. And it's common to us because we've heard the story so many times, but you have to understand that if Jesus is everything that we say that he is, this makes no sense. This was the right one. This was the right place. There is no higher authority, and yet he makes himself humble. And the one who commands the winds and the waves is coming into his city, the picture of meekness and lowliness. And we know, of course, that that's not an accident. We know that although it's striking and different to us, it's exactly what God said would happen back in Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah, a minor prophet who we will come to eventually. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So much even in that that's promised. A king that's righteous. They had never had a truly righteous king, a king who was just in his judgments, and not only righteous, but a king who was bringing salvation, relief from bondage, freedom from oppression. This is the king who is not only righteous, but who is bringing salvation with him. But this king doesn't come to bring political salvation. We know that this king doesn't come to conquer Rome. He comes to conquer an even greater enemy. And as we put all of the gospel accounts together, we see that this king was not only humble and lowly, not only anticipated by the prophets, but this king was longed for by the people. There's a reason that there's the response from the crowds that morning outside of Jerusalem. Look down with me to verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And again, your conception and my conception of that sentence has a lot to do with the images that we've seen growing up. And if your lifetime, like mine, uh, in your formative years was limited to flannel graphs, you can only get so many people on those precious little cutouts. It's Jesus on the donkey and like two disciples next to him. And then if you had the really big flannel graph board, there were maybe a few pictures with gathered people there. Or or the coloring pages that show you Jesus smiling on the donkey and the smiling disciples and a few people in the crowds. You have to understand that this is a greater multitude than had been gathered together likely at any point in Jesus' ministry. You put the gospel accounts together and you understand that there's a crowd that has come down from the region of Galilee with him to move toward Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is one of the three feasts where every able-bodied Jewish man was called and commanded to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so they would come and they would bring their families and they would bring their children and the whole nation would converge on one spot. And so you have this crowd coming from the north down into the south. You have people coming from Jericho where they have seen Jesus heal. You have people coming from Bethphage and Bethany where Lazarus is from who have seen him raise the dead. You have people coming out from Jerusalem itself. And so likely what you have is hundreds of thousands of people It blows away our limited conception of what was happening there. This is 
in an oppressing crush of people coming to get a glimpse of a man riding into them on a donkey. And they're crying out with a loud voice about all the mighty works that they had seen. They know who is coming and they know what Jesus can do. They've heard him preach. They've seen him heal. They've heard, or maybe even some of them had witnessed him make bread and fish multiply to feed a crowd of thousands. And they cry out about this one who is riding into their midst. They spread their cloaks on the ground. They praise God and they shout something very particular. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew's Gospel adds, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course, we know those cries infuriate the religious leaders. Some of the Pharisees say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is a, a monumental occasion where if the crowds were silent, creation itself would cry out. It infuriates the Pharisees because they understand what the people are saying. These aren't just nice words. These aren't just cheers that you would use on an everyday basis. The people are saying what they're saying for a very specific reason. And I want you to turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Uh, it's in the middle of what we call the Hallel Psalms. These songs of worship and praise that the people would sing. And not only would they sing and recite them in the normal course of synagogue worship, but these Hallel Psalms were sung by the people during these great feasts. These are the songs that are in their minds and in their hearts as they gather together to celebrate the times of Yahweh, the appointed times of these people for worship. So the people's minds and hearts are prepared to rejoice and recite certain truths. We read this at the beginning of, the, the beginning of our time together today. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say His steadfast love endures forever. And then 5, 6, and 7 begin to talk about oppression and danger. Verse 8 and 9, the idea of better to take refuge in the Lord. Verse 10, the nations surround you. The people are singing these songs of salvation being found in the Lord and His work and oppression and danger from the nations that the Lord will redeem them from. You understand that these are a people who long for salvation, not in the way that you and I talk about it, but they long for salvation and a freedom from the oppression that they had known really since the beginning of their time in the land. Constant invaders, constant enemies, constant oppression, and we know because of the minor prophets that it was because of their constant disobedience. But there is a national longing for a release from that kind of pressure. But they missed what kind of king is actually riding in their midst. Look to Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That is, Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So you see how it fits in their minds. This is the one who is coming. And he's coming, even how Zechariah said, 
that he would come. This is the one that we have seen teach and heal and calm the storms. Surely this is the one who can save us. If anyone can give us success, it has to be this one. So this isn't just another Passover with just another visiting rabbi. There is something of a cultural hinge point here where all of the longing and all of the anticipation for hundreds of years seems to be fixed on this one man riding in their midst. And the people are overflowing with anticipation and hope that he is going to be everything that they imagine the Messiah will be. But what do they miss? Psalm 118, verse 22, backed up just a few verses. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The stone and the cornerstone. And it's no accident that later on in this same Passion Week, just days after this triumphal entry, Jesus will refer to himself as the cornerstone. But what happens to the cornerstone? First, he's rejected. And even that rejection is no accident. That rejection is part of the plan of God. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Even the rejection of the cornerstone is the Lord's doing. And then we have a very familiar verse that's used in just about every context except the one that it's given in. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Can we sing that about every day? Absolutely and amen. Every day is the day that the Lord has made and his mercies are new every morning. But look at what he's talking about in the context of that verse. What day is it that the Lord has made that we're given to rejoice in? It's the day of the cornerstone's coming and rejection. The day that the rejected stone has become the chief cornerstone. And then, save us, we pray, O Lord. Now we begin to see the context that the crowd missed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And look at verse 27. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. How is Jesus referred to? In John's gospel particularly, he is the light of the world. And then the rest of verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. That should be striking as we think about what's happening back in Luke. See, the crowds cry out for salvation. Hosanna to the Son of David. Save us. Implicit in that cry, oh, save, save us now. There's an urgency, a longing in what they say. And they assume that the king is coming in to sit on his throne. What they miss is that the lamb is coming to be bound to the altar. a greater salvation than they could even hope for. And they miss it. And you can turn back to Luke's gospel now, if you would. Back to Luke 19. Because that context then helps us understand what Luke says next. The disciples are there. 
They're prepared. The crowds are joyful, rejoicing, shouting out. But what about the king himself? How does Jesus respond to the largest outpouring of at least external support over his entire ministry? Well, he's the lowly king and he's the longed for king. But now at the very end of this, we see the king's lament. We've been talking about lament as we've gone through the minor prophets, the idea of sorrow over a sin. And of course, the king doesn't lament for his own sin, but look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. That doesn't seem right. This should be, from an earthly perspective, the high point of Jesus' ministry. There has never been a bigger crowd. There has never been a more pointed opportunity for him to take his place in authority in his city. And yet Jesus is weeping. And we would think, well, Jesus knows everything. Maybe he's weeping about what's coming in this next week. Maybe he's weeping uh, about the heartache that he'll feel as the disciples abandon him. Maybe he's weeping because he knows of the physical distress that he'll be under. Maybe he's weeping as he anticipates the judgment of God coming on him for sin, but that's not what the text says. What does it say? It says he wept over it, verse 42, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They'll tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus does not weep because he's afraid. Jesus does not weep because somehow the plan has gone off course and things just aren't working out. Jesus weeps because he knows that they don't understand. He weeps because he knows that they want a political savior and he weeps because he knows what they actually need and what they so desperately do not want. And rejecting the king comes at a terrible cost. Luke presents what we call the triumphal entry. And it absolutely is a triumphal entry. It's just not in the way that we would assume. This is not a triumph of public opinion. This is not a triumph in the public ministry of Jesus Christ in terms of his popularity and his power. This is a triumphal entry because everything is unfolding exactly as God ordained that it would. This is a triumphal entry because as the king of kings comes in humility, he comes in righteousness and he comes bearing salvation. Not from Rome, not from the oppressive Jewish religious leaders. He has come to bring salvation from sin and death. This is the perfect lamb moving toward the place where he would be sacrificed for the sins of many. And on that Palm Sunday, when the king came, just as Scripture said that he would, when he came clothed in humility and lowliness, the crowds missed it. But that king will come again. And here's the wonderful promise. You and I are still called to live lives of anticipation. We don't have to read events like the triumphal entry 
and understand that longing was for a time and a place and for those people. You and I are called to live with the same awe, the same sense of anticipation, and even the same preparation. See, while that entry looked triumphal from the outside, it was lost on the crowds, but there's a time coming uh, when the king will come again, and I think that second entry is where I want to close our time today. And we're going to look forward by looking back for just a second. Because that first coming into his city was built on anticipation, lowly, even riding on a donkey. Zechariah said exactly that would happen. But where does Jesus go from that entry? Well, look what Luke writes in Luke, 40, in Luke 19.45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. When Jesus comes into his city, the temple comes immediately into view. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, for all their distinctions, for all the differences in timing and presentation, everywhere where this event is presented, everywhere where the triumphal entry is presented, the very first thing that comes into focus after that is the temple. And that means something. It means something because the temple itself means something. We're separated from this as a culture. We live in a time and a place where you go into a a city or a town, even small cities, and there might be a dozen churches, a church on every corner in some places. And see, the Jews have the synagogues, but there was only one temple. There were lots of places where you carried out functions of worship, but there was only one place where you could approach the presence of God. And that's what the temple was designed to be. That place in Jerusalem, God's designated place where his glory would dwell among his people. Or at least it had. When the ark sat in the Holy of Holies, The presence of God was there above the mercy seat. And one man, one day a year, the high priest was able to go into the very presence of God and bring an offering that would atone for or cover the sins of the nation for another year. And this remarkable reality that the God of eternity would dwell among a particular people. That glory left. As the people sin, as the people continue to live in rebellion, Ezekiel talks about the glory of God departing from his temple. A tragic judgment on the people that they miss completely, by the way. But understand that prophetically, the Messiah and the temple are woven together. When we go through the book of Zechariah, we'll come to Zechariah chapter 6. Just before that promise of coming lowly and on a donkey in Zechariah 6, we're told that the Messiah will build his temple and will sit on his throne, that he will be a priest and a king on his throne. And that doesn't make sense because you can't be a priest and a king, at least not under the law. Your priests come from one tribe and your kings come from another tribe and the two don't mix and mingle. Until you come to Psalm 110 and there's this promise of a king who will sit as a priest And how there will be peace between those two offices, which the author of Hebrews makes a huge point out of. The idea that Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. 
we say, but when Jesus came into the temple, that week of the triumphal entry, it doesn't seem like much happened. In fact, one of the gospel accounts says he went in, looked around, and then left for the day. That's because they missed it. They missed the anticipation of what the Messiah was supposed to do, but that doesn't change what God's plan is. Ezekiel is another prophet who writes hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Some of the most visual and fascinating and difficult prophecies in our entire Bible. And yet toward the end of the book, where Ezekiel once talked about the departure of the glory of God, he begins to talk about the return of God's glory. Ezekiel talks about dry bones clothed and covered with flesh and having a new spirit breathed into them. Ezekiel talks about another temple that will be built. In Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2, this is what Ezekiel writes. Ezekiel 43, verse 2. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. The glory of God returning to the people. And if you're paying attention, the glory of God is not just a thing, a glory. It's a he. The glory that comes to rule. The glory that comes to dwell. And a voice that comes out of the temple and speaks to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. It's no accident that Jesus went to the temple. It was every prophetic anticipation that when Messiah comes, he comes to take his rightful place as a king and priest on his throne. That should have been the first place the people went if they knew what God had promised them. But the Messiah is coming again. And the glory of God will come to his place to build his temple and to rule over his people and the nations. And who is the glory of God? We know the Sunday school answer is Jesus, but the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, puts it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he, the Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That promised king who came is the promised king who is coming again. He is the glory of the Lord that is going to return to dwell as a king and priest on his throne. And although sometimes we avoid talking about the end because it can be confusing, because people have different opinions, because sometimes it can even cause division, uh, there's a reason that God gave us a picture of what is coming. Are there difficult passages? Yes. Are there disagreements? Absolutely. But there's no reason for us to shy away from what we know is coming because God has given it to us for our encouragement, our edification, our building up. Ultimately, he gives us a picture of what's coming so that we can worship in light of those things. And we have to be brought back to the reality that when Christ comes again, it is going to be very different than when he came the first time. 
no matter what your view on the end is, there are indisputable realities that include the fact that Christ is coming again. But what is it going to look like when the King comes in His glory? What's the promise of the power going to look like? Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation opens with a vision of the glorified Christ. It continues with messages, warnings, and encouragements to the churches of Christ. It continues through the judgments of Christ poured out on the rebellious in the world. And as you come toward Revelation 19, it begins to talk about the consummation of all of human history here. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened. And behold... A white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how Jesus returns. You want something to anticipate? Drive that picture into your mind and your soul today. Because when he comes again, he is not coming on a donkey. He is coming on a horse. When he comes, his eyes aren't going to be filled with tears. They're described like a flame of fire. On his head is not a crown of thorns, it is crowns of crowns. When the king comes again, he does not come in humility. He comes in glory and honor and power. And according to Zechariah 14, his feet come and they touch the Mount of Olives and they split it in half. And on that day, this king will be the Lord and sovereign ruler over all of the earth. That is the king that we anticipate coming again. Anticipation and preparation. The reality is, what we anticipate is what we will prepare for. You and I live in California, and every now and again, the ground shakes a little bit. And as a result of that, most of us have some kind of loosely formulated plan that at least involves a couple of extra bottles of water and some canned food in the garage. We anticipate that happening And so we prepare for it. If you have a wedding coming up, if you have a 20th or 50th high school reunion coming up, you anticipate seeing people that you haven't seen for a while. And so you prepare by maybe laying off the fast food so you fit in clothes that you haven't fit into for a while. And you begin to order your life in anticipation of what you know is coming. We spend an awful lot of time and money anticipating and preparing for temporal, temporary things. You and I have the amazing, awesome privilege of knowing the mind of the God of the universe and his plans for all of human history. He has told us that he is coming again. And so you and I have not just the responsibility, but the joy of ordering our lives in anticipation of the king coming again being a people ready and waiting to see him. 
So what will that preparation look like? First, submit to the king. This is the one that Paul says of in Philippians chapter 2, that one day before him every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Submission is not optional. And one day every knee will bow. God has graciously and mercifully given us today to willingly and joyfully respond in submission. If you've heard all about this Jesus, if you know the Bible stories and the triumphal entry better than I do, but you have never come to the place where your heart has been broken over your sin, where you have been driven to your knees in repentance and cried out in faith for God to save you from the terror and the horror of your own sin, where you've never placed your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, if you're not longing for his coming, then I urge you, while it is still called today, to submit to the king. Bow as a willing servant, an adopted son or daughter, rather than a conquered foe in eternity. Second, serve the king. For those of us that have been called and saved by Jesus Christ, we get to spend the rest of our lives ordered according to obedience. How would we live if we knew the king was coming today? What would our priorities be? What would our actions be? What would our words be like if we knew that the king was coming today? Well, because we don't know when the king is coming, we get to live every day as if it could be the day. We get to live every day in anticipation of seeing this king face to face and every day with the goal of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. A reminder that obedience isn't just a rote obligation to a king that we're terrified of, but that our obedience is driven out of the fact that this king, infinite in his power, is also merciful. That he's loved us, that he's called us, that he promises to bless us, promises to make us able to obey, promises to give us joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness because of the work of the Spirit. And so as we obey, we find lives that aren't lived in oppression and structure of cold, hard rules. We find lives of real joy and contentment in following after how the king has told us to walk. And finally, we had better be a people who speak about the king. If this king is coming again, he has left us with one purpose, to go and to make disciples, to talk about the one who came in humility, righteous to save, and who is coming again just as righteous, but righteous to judge to judge the world for sin, to judge his saints, not because of any of their own doing, but because of his righteousness on them, to judge them as being worthy of spending eternity with him. What a remarkable thing to be able to have the privilege to announce the coming of the king. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live our lives in anticipation. There's so much in this world that distracts, that even hurts, that exhausts. Lord, change our perspective. When you call us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow you, remind us that not only are you worthy of that because of who you are, but that it is all worth it because you've promised us an eternal inheritance with this king the King who came in humility to save us from our sins, the King who is coming again in power and glory to take your rightful place as ruler of the nations. Lord, prepare our hearts 
in worship, in submission, in joy. We pray, Lord, come quickly. Amen.